A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. It's printed on the inside of your bulletin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning again. Welcome again to Trinity Church. It's great to see you. As Pastor Casey said, this is the second Sunday of Advent, the traditional season of four weeks where we prepare him room where we look forward to the Christmas day, the Christmas miracle. And uh, in Advent, what we're doing is we're, we're putting ourselves in the place of the Hebrews, longing for the arrival of the Messiah. Now, on this side of, of Bethlehem, we're also looking forward to the second Advent or the second coming, the second arrival of our Lord, not as a baby, but rather as a, a reigning and glorified king. And I'm sure you're feeling this right now, that this is a fairly unique advent. I mean, everything that's happening this year is fairly unique. COVID has changed absolutely everything. And uh, I I listened to a podcast the other day. The title of it was, When Are Things Going to Go Back to Normal? Or something like that. I was like, well, I really want to know the answer to that question. Uh, So it was with Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates, um, and also Karen from The Office was in it. So the three of them are answering this question. And basically, Dr. Fauci's like, not as soon as you think. You know, we have some vaccines, but it's going to take months before they're available to the average American. Plus, there will be people who don't take the vaccine. And so this is going to continue to last through the year. And then Bill Gates is like, economically, financially, this is going to last far beyond 2021 and 2022. Uh, Fairly depressing podcast episode, if I'm being honest. But there's something I think that's happening in us as a people, in us as a culture, really the whole world, 
As we are looking forward to the end of this struggle, we're looking forward to things going back to the way they were. We're looking forward to life as it should be. And I began to realize that, that even the, the desire, the hope, the longing for a vaccine, it's almost messianic. Like we're waiting, we're, we're anticipating, we're expecting, we're, we're leaning forward, longing for this type of salvation. And so Advent comes in, and, and it's really the perfect posture of heart. It's the perfect posture for a church to take. It's like we are longing, we are expectant, but not just for a vaccine, but for the true hope, the, the real life as it should be. Now, in the midst of all of this, we've been doing this series very intentionally called God's Heart for Renewal. And we're tracing through the scriptures and through church history how God works through patterns of renewal and revival in His, in his people. And it's a way for us to, to recognize in the spirit of Advent that we want to create space for more of God's presence. We want more of God in our lives. We want more of God Himself in our church. There's a quote, I've shared this before, but I think it's a helpful starting place. Tim Keller has written, Revival is a consistent pattern of how the Holy Spirit works in a community to counteract the default mode of the human heart. If it were natural or even possible for our hearts to operate consistently from the truth and life-giving power of the gospel, we wouldn't need a persistent, balanced, revivalist ministry. But of course, it isn't possible and so we do. And so in this series, we've been defining renewal as the ordinary, ongoing process of growth in Christ's image. And, and revival, it's not something totally different than that. Rather, it's renewal in, in an extraordinary measure. It's the intensification of renewal in a time and place. It's, it's renewal amplified. And so it's in the season of Advent, in this series, where we're praying, would you wake us up, Lord? Would you come and, and reawaken us to your glory, reawaken us to the goodness of your gospel, reawaken us as, as we often drift and we often grow dry and weary, reawaken us as individuals and as churches in this community. Call us from this, this deep slumber and empower us by your gospel. And so today we're looking at the, the second element of Revival, which is gospel reawakening. How, how people become alive and reawakened to the gospel and how this is always present in renewal and revival. And so we're just looking at two things today, the message of the gospel and then the renewing power of the gospel. So let's start with that first thing, the message of the gospel. And when I say gospel, when we use the word gospel, here as a church, we're referring to the core message of Christianity. The gospel simply means good news or an announcement. And the gospel, the, the thing that's being announced, is that life with God is now available to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because this life came at great cost to Jesus, it can come at no cost to us. It comes entirely by grace. And so when we refer to the gospel and, and its power in our lives, we're referring not only to that message, but what it means that we are one with God through Jesus. Now, that's sort of a 
textbook definition of the gospel. And the New Testament does have textbook definitions of the gospel. The Apostle Paul is also often giving us these definitions. But for the most part, what the scriptures do and what's so brilliant about the New Testament is far more than they give us definitions, they give us images, they give us illustrations, they give us stories, they give us narrative, they, they spark our imagination. And so what John 1 does is absolutely masterful. This is one of my, my favorite uh, chapters in all of Scripture. I think it's one of the most important uh, pieces of writing in human history. And what we're going to see in John 1 is four images or pictures just straight from the text that help us not only understand the gospel, but help us experience it. Help us feel it, because it's not enough just to to know the facts of the gospel. We need to internalize it. It needs to renew us. My hope today is that John 1 can be kind of a a balm for your soul, a a, a healing power on your soul. And so here's, here's the first image. It's that life is a gift from God. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And so John, he's picking up on this this very well-known introduction to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is picking up this language. And it's a way of reminding us that God is always creating by his word. God's word has a a life-giving power. When God speaks, life comes about. Creation happens. Things are happening. And so all life is formed and given order and direction by this word, but it's, it's curious, and it would have been very strange in the first century to the Hebrew listeners to hear that this word is being personified. There's, there's these pronouns, he and him. The word became flesh. In him was life. He was with God in the beginning. God's word is, is a person. God's word is, is highly personal. In this person of the word, there is life. It is he who formed us and breathed life into us. Now, it doesn't tell us at this point in the passage who this he is. We have to keep moving. The second image then is light in the darkness. So life is a gift from God. The second image is light into darkness. Verse 4 continues, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, light and dark is a, is a really frequent theme in the Scriptures, and whenever we see light as a theme in the Scriptures, it almost always represents God's presence. It's light. You can think of the angels lighting up the sky when they make an appearance. You can think of the burning bush when, when God speaks to, to Moses out of these burning flames. Or maybe after Moses speaks with God and receives the law, he comes down from on the mountain and his face is glowing so brightly that he has to put a veil on because it's literally burning others' eyes. Light is often synonymous with glory. So John's telling us the, the word of God, it is, it is light that pierces the darkness. You know, light doesn't just cancel out darkness, it drives darkness out. 
If I remember from whatever chemistry class this was, darkness is like not an actual thing, you know? It's just the absence of light. But in our world, spiritually, I think darkness really is an active force. It's a presence that's opposed to the light. But just like when you, when you wake up in the morning, if you wake up before the sun's up and, and it's dark in your room and you wake up to your alarm and you flip on a light switch, you know that feeling when the light just floods the room and you're trying to open your eyes at the same time? The darkness is completely driven out when the light shows up. Now, nonetheless, John says that the world did not receive this light. The people chose to remain in darkness. But here's the third image. We become children of God. Though some didn't receive, verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now, John is still describing this word as a person. He gave us the right to become children of God. But the the Israelites would have been wondering, how on earth could this happen? When the Israelites knew well the the whole Old Testament history and, and system, they understood that to come into God's presence, you need a couple of things. Just to enter God's presence, which at the time was inside the temple and the Holy of Holies, surrounded by this this thick curtain. And only once a year could a man enter, and it was only the great high priest who could enter that room. The great high priest, he couldn't come empty-handed, but he had to bring a blood sacrifice. And in that moment, in that act, the high priest and the sacrifice, God's presence would remain with the people. They would be forgiven. And so the Israelites would have been wondering, well, how could we become children of God, especially for us as as non-Jews, as Gentiles? How could we become children of God without a high priest, without the sacrifice? All of this. And that's the fourth image. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the image. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. One of the, maybe the most important verses in all the scriptures. Again, maybe one of the like top ten most significant sentences of all time. And so, if you're if you're looking for a single verse to meditate on this Advent, just just ten words in, in this translation. I don't think you can do better than this one right here. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Now, if I can can explain this a little bit, we'll go a little nerdy for a minute here. John was writing to two different audiences. He was writing both to Jews and to Greeks. And they would have heard this exact verse in two very different ways. Now, the, the Hebrews, the, the, the Israelite listeners, they knew the Word of God. They understood this image in Old Testament history, that God speaks by His Word, and when He speaks, He creates, and He brings life into the world. However, the Greeks, when they heard this phrase, they thought something totally different. The Word is, is logos. The logos became flesh. And logos, it means order or reason. It's where we get our word logic. 
And in, and in Greek, in the Greco-Roman uh, culture, this was one of their most persistent themes. It was all over their philosophy and their vision for life. Logos was the thing that held everything together. So they weren't really atheists. They didn't know the true God, but they understood there was an order to the universe. And in their philosophy, there was some mysterious logos that held it all together. And so you can see how when the Hebrews heard this, it was radical because John is saying, you know the one true word of God. Now the way to know God is through Jesus Christ. A radical statement for the Hebrews. But then for the Greeks, it's this radical statement that, that the thing that you've been looking for for centuries, that all of your philosophy books are trying to figure out, this order and reason, this logic to all the universe, it's found in Jesus Christ. He's the answer to every solution, whatever your cultural background is. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the life-giving Word became flesh, literally meat and, and bones. We call it the incarnation, in carne, meaning, meaning meat, like, you know, chili con carne. It just means flesh, meat. The Word took on flesh and blood and made his dwelling among us. The author N.T. Wright says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham a nonsense, a bit of deceitful playmaking. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. In other words, the gospel is either completely true or it is completely false. Jesus is either the, the hope of all things, the, the desire of all nations, or he is a complete sham. He is either the longing of every heart or he is nothing. Now, as this verse finishes, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that is intentional language as well. The, the dwelling literally means that the word tabernacled among us or, or pitched his tent among us. It's really specific Old Testament language. It's, it's sort of Israel in the wilderness type language. So when Israel's in the wilderness, 40 years before they got to the promised land, they were constantly on the move. And so there was no you know, temple where they could put down a foundation and leave it there, but rather they had a tent of meeting that whenever they stopped, they would put it down. And that's where the presence of God would dwell. Only one man, Moses, could enter this presence, but he could speak to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. John is saying that in the gospel, Jesus has come and tabernacled among us. And he has done this so that we might see his glory. Verse 14, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I don't know if you've seen this or noticed it in your bulletin, if you're looking at it, but Jesus Christ is not actually named until verse 17 in this chapter. We hear in him was life. He was with God in the beginning, all these pronouns. But it's, it's this masterful work of I mean, just the literature is beautiful. 
because he's describing this person in whom all of our hope rests. And only in verse 17 does he name him. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a classic hymn that puts it like this. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And that's it. That is the gospel. Life as, as a gift from God, light piercing the darkness. The word made flesh so that we might become children of God. The question now is, is how does this change us? What does this do in our souls? What does this do in our life? What does this do in our churches? And that's the second thing, the renewing power of the gospel. And according to John 1, it starts with what he calls the new birth. When we believe the gospel, when we put faith in Jesus, we are, we are born again. It is a second birth. The theological word for this is regeneration. We are made new again. It's like the scales fall off of our hearts. And this ordinary human life is now infused with meaning and significance. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit, enters our hearts. And literally everything changes. In John's language, the light of all mankind, Jesus Christ, shines in our darkness. The darkness cannot overcome it. We become children of God. The hymn continues, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. And so this new birth is the first thing that, that the gospel does to renew us by its power. But it doesn't just renew us once, it continually renews us. And that's what we've been talking about in this series, that, that the gospel renews us every single day. Just as the sun comes up and, and the warmth and the light shines on us so we can be renewed over and over and over again in his presence. This reawakening, it's not a, a definitive change like the new birth, but instead it's an ongoing process of experience in Christ. We're gradually being shaped into the image of Christ. And so the first thing that happens is that the gospel gives us new birth, but the second thing is that the gospel makes us witnesses. Verse 7 says, John, and that's John the Baptist, so different from the, the author of the book, John. John the Baptist came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. Now, I don't know if you've ever been the you know, witness to, to a crime or been called to testify before a court. I've never been in a courtroom. But when I think about something that I've, I've witnessed, I, I remember some years ago, it was like a decade ago, but Jesse and I were living in an old neighborhood here in Columbia, and we woke up middle of the night, silence, sirens blaring, and police officers are like right outside our front door shouting, you know, on the ground, on the ground. So we like, you know, roll out of bed, army crawl up to the window, and there's like six squad cars descending in front of our neighbor's house, right across the street from us. And there's a guy on the front porch. What, what had happened was he had robbed a, you know, liquor store or something, was making a break for it. Police are chasing him, and he tried to break into our neighbor's house when they caught him. 
So this is like this crazy scene. I mean, thankfully it ended without, you know, gunshots or any, anybody being hurt. But you can imagine us the next day. We were like, did you, did you hear what happened? Did you see it on the news? We were right there. It was in our front yard. It was like crazy. And we were like this and they were like this. But when, when you become a witness of something, you can't help but testify about it. You want to share it. When, when you see something amazing and beautiful and powerful, you want to speak of it. And that's John the Baptist, but it's, it's not just him. Acts 1.8, Jesus calls us all to be witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on me, and you will be witnesses in all the earth. And so the gospel makes us new again. It makes us witnesses. But the third thing is that the gospel unleashes a self-giving lifestyle. The gospel releases us to self-sacrifice. Another story, this was, was decades ago, and you may remember hearing it, but in, in Queens, New York City, there was a, a woman who was attacked and, and mugged and stabbed to death in the middle of the day, broad daylight. And it was right at the bottom of this, like the courtyard of this apartment complex. And so it made the national news, and I remember hearing about it in one of my psychology classes, because not only did nobody come down and help her when she was screaming, but nobody even called this in for like a long time. There were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that could have done something. And so the idea was journalists went in and tried to, to do all these interviews in the apartment complexes and ask, well, why didn't you do anything? And pretty much all of them said, well, we just assume so many people are seeing this, somebody else will do something. But there was one man's quote that, that stood out and made all the headlines. He simply said, I just didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to get involved. If we're being honest, it kind of makes sense because if he came running down to help, he probably would have been attacked. You know, it would have put his life in harm's way. So he chose not to get involved. Now, the thing about getting involved is that it draws you into the pain of another person. It draws you into the, the hurt. It, it makes you vulnerable. It exposes you to great suffering when you don't really have to. And this is, this is the message of Christmas. That God saw our need, heard our cries, and he came down and got involved. He saw that there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. And so he came down. He made himself vulnerable. He came into our pain and hurt and suffering when he didn't have to. And he got involved. He took on flesh so that he could get involved. Now, how could you experience something like this? How could you be saved by this kind of self-sacrifice and not want to do the same thing? This self-sacrifice from God the Father and sending His Son and in the Son going willingly for us. It changes us from the inside out. It moves us to self-sacrifice. Our lives are then given away. We go to the pain. We go to the hard places. We listen for the cries of the weak and we get involved. And so I want you to think about what does that look like for you, even this week? Who's maybe like the neighbor on your street that everybody else sort of avoids? Maybe where is there a place in the city where, where you know there's a significant need and maybe you don't feel like you're equipped to meet that need? But what does it look like to get 
involved. Maybe it's going all in on community and relationships, actually accepting responsibility and accepting accountability from others. Maybe it's giving, maybe it's financial, not just a few dollars here or there, but actually giving to the point where you have to change your lifestyle, where you really have to get involved. If you think about it, the gospel comes from self-sacrifice. It comes from the sacrifice of God, and what it produces in us is a self-giving lifestyle. Here's the last thing. The gospel gives us hope. We are living in, in hopeless times. You know, the fact that we could have a podcast episode, when is this all going to be over? It just shows how deep we need something outside of us in our world. The gospel is the only thing that can give us this hope, not just for COVID, not just for this life, but for a hope beyond the grave, a hope that's bigger than any virus, any world pandemic, any economic collapse. We need something so much deeper. Now remember the phrase, the word tabernacled among us so that we might see his glory. This tabernacle or this temple imagery It gives us hope because it reminds us of the Holy of Holies, that place where no one could enter except once a year and only the high priest, only with a perfect spotless lamb, only in in complete obedience could that happen. And the gospel changes all of this. The massive barrier between God and us The massive barrier is the fact that the wages of sin is death, that we cannot live because of our sin. And that's what the curtain represents, this massive barrier that keeps us out of the presence of God. And so what we need is a high priest. What we need is perfect obedience. We need a blood sacrifice. And what John is saying is that Jesus, the eternal word, the son of God became flesh and blood to enter the tabernacle on our behalf. He is the great high priest that we need who stands before God with with the perfect obedience that we don't have. And as a great high priest, he represents us. But not only that, he himself is the blood sacrifice. He's the atoning sacrifice that, that pays the penalty for the sins of the people so that all who believe in him can take the perfect righteousness of the high priest. And that barrier, that great curtain that kept the presence of God in and the people out, when Jesus died, it said that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Not only now can people enter the presence of God, but now the presence of God can come bursting forth, searching after us. Jesus saw our suffering, he saw our need, and he got involved. Jesus is the light of the world piercing the darkness. He's the giver of all life. He's the author and sustainer of life. Having been resurrected on the third day, he raises us with him to become like him, children of God. And every day until he returns, he offers us this renewing power of the gospel. 
Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Let's pray.